Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. You know, HR managers ain't cheap. Their salaries can average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Calm, the number one wellness app for supporting my podcast. Improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks and drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. Just go to calm.com slash gold. And for a limited time, you can get 40% off your Calm premium subscription with hundreds of hours of programming, unlimited access to Calm's entire library, and new content that's added every week. I want to start off today's podcast by talking about Thursday's big drop in the price of gold. Now, first of all, the big drop was about $40, which is roughly a 2% move in the price of gold. So in the grand scheme of things, when it comes to most assets, 2% drop is not really considered that large. I mean, nobody really bats an eye if an individual stock goes down by 2% on any given day because those types of moves up and down happen with pretty consistent regularity. I mean, not every day. I mean, a 2% move is not the normal move for a stock, but it happens quite often. Now, of course, for the broader market, something like the Dow Jones, a 2% move is a big move, right? Maybe, what, about 700 Dow points based on where we are now, around 35,000 on the Dow. But those moves happen from time to time, generally not once a week or maybe not even once a month, but they certainly happen several times throughout the year. And, oh, the Dow was down 700 today. Most people 
aren't that concerned. Well, that's how the market goes. Sometimes you see these shakeouts. Most people are not concerned for the rare occasion when you get a 2% move down in the Dow. But for some reason, when you get a 2% move in gold, it's a big deal. Even though those types of moves generally do happen a few times per year, they're not that regular because gold in general is not very volatile. In fact, it's less volatile than your typical stock. And I think it's even less volatile than the major stock market indexes, which is maybe why when you get a move of 2%, it does get a lot of attention within the gold community. Maybe not so much attention in the general investing public that really isn't paying attention to the price of gold because they don't have any gold. But I know a lot of people who are in gold when they see that big move and they're like, oh my God, what's going on? Gold was down by 2% or 40 bucks. Silver, on the other hand, made a bigger move yesterday. Silver was down about 80 cents, which is like a 3.5% move, which rarely happens to the price of gold. 2% moves happen once in a while, but 3.5% moves are extremely rare for gold, not so for silver. In fact, silver is down again today, another 2% or so as I'm recording this. Gold is relatively flat on the day, so silver's two-day drop now is over 5.5%. That is a pretty big move, and again, silver is a pretty volatile metal. But the catalyst for yesterday's decline was the better-than-expected retail sales number, although before we got the retail sales numbers, Gold was down. I mean, not 40 bucks. I think it might have been down somewhere between 10 and 20 bucks. So gold added to its declines once the report came out. I think what was causing the initial drop in the price of gold had to do with the concerns coming out of China regarding the Evergrande situation. If you're not familiar with Evergrande, it is a property development company in mainland China that has $300 billion worth of debt. And the fear is that the company can't pay, that it's insolvent, that in potential bankruptcy is headed, and maybe, in fact, Evergrande could end up being China's Lehman moment. Uh, the reference there to the failure of Lehman Brothers, which sparked the 2008 financial crisis. Now, first of all, I don't think the Evergrande situation is going to be another Lehman crisis. In fact, ever since Lehman, there have been a lot of potential crises that have been described as a Lehman moment. And thus far, none of them actually have lived up to all the hype. And my feeling is the same thing will end up being true for the Evergrande situation. Because if you remember what happened with Lehman Brothers, Lehman Brothers actually was allowed to fail. And that was one of the only things the government did right was letting Lehman Brothers fail. But after it failed, then everything changed because the catastrophic events that followed the failure of Lehman Brothers led to the government adopting a completely different strategy of bailing out everybody and letting nobody fail. And so after Lehman failed, nobody did. Lehman was the last bank to fail because everybody got bailed out. We got the TARP, we got quantitative easing. And so if Evergrande is a Lehman moment, then it would mean that China was about to unleash massive liquidity to make sure that no other companies collapsed following Evergrande. But again, 
since China is familiar with U.S. history and they know what happened with Lehman Brothers, they would never allow a Lehman moment if they were going to respond to a Lehman moment the same way the U.S. responded. If China would simply open up the floodgates in the aftermath of an Evergrande bankruptcy to make sure that nobody else went bankrupt, why not just open up the floodgates now? Why not just bail out Evergrande before it even fails? After all, that is exactly what U.S. authorities would have done had they been able to turn back time, right? Had they been able to take a mulligan on letting Lehman fail, they clearly wouldn't have. They would have bailed Lehman out before it failed, hoping that that might have avoided all the dominoes that ultimately fell. So to the extent that China thinks that Evergrande is a Lehman moment, they will not allow that Lehman moment to actually happen. They will preempt it. They will come to the rescue of Evergrande before it even has a chance to fail. So there's two possibilities. It's not a Lehman moment in that they're going to let it fail and then let the chips fall where they may. Or if they think it's a Lehman moment, they're not going to let it fail and they're going to bail it out. But I think regardless of what happens, I think the market is overreacting, at least the commodity markets. If you look at what's happening to iron ore, iron ore prices are getting killed. That is weighing down some of the companies that produce it. Iron ore is also used in steel. And the thinking is, if we have this huge bankruptcy in China, it's going to send a chill throughout the entire property market. Property prices are going to fall. Development projects are going to be canceled or put on hold. And so China's not going to need all this construction material. They're not going to need the steel. And so they're not going to need the iron. And so the markets are collapsing based on all these fears and the way all this may play out. But either way, either it doesn't happen because Chinese government doesn't let it happen or the situation works itself out without the Chinese government's interference or Evergrande does go bankrupt. And in the short run, yes, there is going to be a downturn in the property sector, but it's not going to be permanent. Once the debt is defaulted on, whatever assets Evergrande owned are now going to be the property of the creditors. And now what are the creditors going to do with all the property? What are they going to do with all the projects? What are they going to do with all the building material or all the, the machines that Evergrande owned, right? Well, they're going to start using it all. I mean, the property development is going to continue even after Evergrande goes bankrupt because once you eliminate the debt that was overhanging the company, they're actually better positioned to move forward and develop property. So life is not going to end if you have a bankruptcy, even if the government sits by and lets it happen. But again, it's more likely that they won't, that if it is such a systemic problem, the Chinese authorities will nip it in the bud by unleashing a floodgate of money, which will immediately cause an increase in demand for commodity prices as a result of all the inflation that is created to preempt a crisis. But I think as this crisis is starting to rear its head and investors are starting to think out all of the various negative things that could result. They're selling, they're selling certain types of stocks and they're buying the dollar, right? So the dollar's caught a bid from the potential of some type of financial crisis in China 
And the dollar going up is one of the reasons that gold and silver were going down. And so gold and silver were already on the defensive before the markets hit them with the second of a one-two punch. And that was the retail sales report, which came out way above what the markets had been expecting. Remember, the prior month in July, we had a down month, down 1.1. And in fact, they revised that and they made it even worse. We now know that retail sales in July fell by 1.8%. So a much bigger drop. If you X out vehicles, the decline was 1%, which was more than double the original number of minus 0.4. And if you X out vehicles and gas, the decline was 1.4%, double the 0.7% that we were originally told. So the revisions were bad, but then the actual August numbers were much stronger in part because of those revisions, right? That made it easier for these numbers to be smaller. But the consensus was for a 0.8% drop in August. And instead we got a 0.7% rise and X autos, instead of declining by 0.1, we had a surge of 1.8% and X autos and gasoline, instead of going down by 0.3, we went up by a full two percentage points. So those numbers, the actual raw numbers for August were so much higher than expected. In fact, all the expectations had minus signs in front of them. And now we had big positives. And as soon as this number hit the wires, gold just got hammered right away. Silver to dollar went up. People are excited because they think, aha, the consumer is strong. And therefore, the Fed is going to tighten policy, which, of course, is complete nonsense, because even if the Fed were to tighten policy, what they are going to do hardly constitutes tighten in the traditional sense of the word, because the only thing they may do is implement a tapering program of their current quantitative easing program, which means instead of buying $120 billion a month of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, they will buy less than that number. How much less? We don't know. But all they're going to do is be a little less easy than they are right now. But under no definition of monetary policy is less easy when you're already super easy and now you're slightly less super easy, that's not tight. That type of tightening is not positive for the dollar. It is not negative for gold. But again, that is the way the markets are reacting to it because they're simply looking back at time and they know that, oh, when the Fed is tightening, you don't want to fight the Fed. When the Fed is raising rates and fighting inflation, you want to own the dollar. You don't want to be in gold, except the Fed is not going to do that in the traditional sense because it can't because it's inflated too big a bubble to actually do that. So I think it may be that the most they can do when it comes to tightening is talk about tapering. They may not even be able to taper, but even if they taper, the balance sheet continues to grow. And by the way, if you look at the numbers that came out on Thursday, it is a new record high. 8.45 trillion is the current size of the Fed's balance sheet, up 91.5 billion in the most recent week. That balance sheet is going to continue to go up even if the Fed actually begins to taper. 
because tapering doesn't stop QE. QE continues. QE doesn't stop until they've tapered down to zero, which could take a year or two if they even could get that far. But then, of course, it's not just tapering. They have to be able to implement quantitative tightening because they got to quantitative tightening last time. Because after they tapered the QE down to zero, once QE stopped, they then eventually implemented quantitative tightening where the Fed started to shrink its balance sheet. And if you recall, the balance sheet went down from about four and a half trillion to a little bit below four trillion. I think maybe 3.8 trillion, something like that. But here we are back at eight and a half trillion. So what did quantitative tightening accomplish? Nothing. I mean, what did tapering accomplish? Nothing. Because the balance sheet now is almost double the size before we even began to taper. So we didn't actually accomplish anything. We took a couple of steps forward when it came to shrinking the balance sheet, but then we took, you know, hundreds of steps backwards to drive the balance sheet back up to eight and a half trillion. So even if the Fed is able to start tapering, and by the time it finishes tapering down to zero, where QE has ended, the balance sheet will be at least 10 trillion, if not above 10 trillion. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to try to shrink their balance sheet again? Are they going to do another quantitative tightening? How far are they going to get? Will they be able to go down to $9 trillion or $8 trillion before the wheels come off the bus again and they're back to an even bigger QE program than they had before? And then the balance sheet doubles to $20 trillion? And then what? They're going to taper that down to $18 trillion? The point is the balance sheet is growing in perpetuity. It's impossible to shrink it even if you temporarily manage to shrink it. All you're simply doing is setting the stage for the next QE program that's going to blow it up to new highs because the minute you try to take away the drugs, the economy goes into convulsions, right? There's withdrawal. And then the next thing the Fed does is, well, we can't have that. And so now we need more drugs. And then we go to a bigger round of QE. So why even bother to try to say, hey, we got some stronger than expected economic data. The Fed might tighten when any tightening they may do is meaningless and will ultimately be reversed with even more easy money policy. I can tell you from experience, when you're running a small business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, discrimination, minimum wage requirements, all sorts of labor regulations. And HR managers' salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created especially for small business owners. You can actually get your own dedicated HR manager who will craft HR policy and maintain all your compliance and do it just for $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from one of your biggest liabilities to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager will be available to you by phone, email, or real-time chat. For anything from onboarding to terminations, they will customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage all your employees day-to-day, and they will do it all for just $99 a month. And the best thing is, it's month-to-month, there's no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. So, Go to Bambi.com slash goal right now to schedule your free 
HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals 24. That's Chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. So the bottom line is it doesn't really matter that these retail sales numbers were higher than expected. It really doesn't change any of the dynamics at the Federal Reserve. The Fed can't tighten and they're not going to tighten. It doesn't even matter what these numbers are. But also, just because the numbers were higher than expected doesn't mean that consumers are actually buying more stuff in these retail sales numbers because the retail sales numbers are not adjusted for price. So it's just however much you bought times the price. So there's two ways that retail sales can go up. One is if consumers buy more stuff. The other is if the price of the stuff they're buying goes up. So the question is, are retail sales up because consumers are buying more or are retail sales up because consumers are paying more? You can't tell from the data. But obviously, if you're living in the real world, it's obvious what's going on. I think that the bigger component of the increase in retail sales is the price of the stuff that people are buying. So it is the fact that they're paying more that is driving these numbers up, not that they're buying more. And if you look at the consumer sentiment numbers that came out today for September, that backs me up because we had a huge plunge in consumer sentiment in August, totally unexpected. And the culprit was inflation. Inflation expectations were rising and consumers were pulling back on their spending because the price of the stuff that they wanted to buy was going up too much and they could no longer afford to buy. And so they decided that they weren't going to. And so that's why consumers were so down in the dumps was because the things they wanted to buy were too expensive for them to afford. And so they were canceling their plans or postponing their plans to buy things. Now, a lot of people assumed that we would get a rebound from that number and the expectations were maybe we'll get as high as 75. The consensus though was about 72 and we came out at 71. So a little bit below the rebound that was expected, 
but there wasn't even that big a rebound that the markets expected. So they got that right. It's just that the rebound was even smaller than they expected. And why is it that we got such a small rebound? And that's because the inflation expectations are even higher now than they were a month ago. And if you look at the plans for big purchases, homes, household durables, and vehicles, those three components dropped to the lowest levels since 1982, 1980, and 1974, respectively. Meaning, since 1982, we have not seen consumers this pessimistic on the prospects of buying a home. Why? You've got record low mortgage rates. I mean, mortgage rates are so low. Know where they were in 1982? I mean, mortgage rates were double digit in 1982. Yet more people are having a problem buying a home today than when they had 12, 13% mortgages. How could that possibly be? Well, in 1982, and again, we were in a huge recession in 1982. We're supposedly in a recovery now. But during that recession, even though mortgage rates were double digit, home prices were low enough and average Americans had a strong enough personal balance sheet that Americans could still afford to buy homes even if they had to spend so much money on the interest for the mortgages to buy the homes. Well, now, even though mortgage rates are at rock bottom, prices are so high that even those low rates are no longer able to make real estate affordable. And so that's why people don't want to buy. Household durable goods... This is the weakest since 1980. Again, interest rates were 20% in 1980. This was the beginning of a huge recession that at the time was the worst one since the Great Depression. And now U.S. consumers are as pessimistic on their ability to buy major appliances than they were in 1980. But the real shocker is automobiles. People now are the least likely to buy a car going all the way back to 1974. Why is that? I mean, don't people want new cars? Sure, but they can't even afford used cars. The price of used cars have gone up so much that people can't even afford those, let alone a new one. So if consumers aren't buying household durables, if they're not buying cars, why are retail sales so strong? Well, probably because the stuff they are buying is so much more expensive now than it used to be that retail sales are up because prices are up. But that is nothing to celebrate. This is not a sign of economic strength. And how much longer can overly in-debt consumers continue to go on paying these increasing prices? They can't. They're going to have to start cutting back on a lot of what they buy because the stuff they do buy is going to be so much more expensive. And another reason why traders should just take these retail sales numbers with a grain of salt when it comes to their assessment of when the Fed is going to start tightening policy by announcing some type of tapering program is the reality of what is going on in Washington, D.C. right now. First of all, the Biden administration is out today warning about an economic catastrophe if the debt ceiling is not raised, right? And right now, the national debt is $28.77 trillion, right? So I don't know where they want to raise the ceiling. I mean, $30 trillion or right now the ceiling is suspended. And I forget at what level it was suspended, but it's probably like $5 trillion or more lower than the current national debt. So I'm not sure, you know, what kind of smoke and mirrors they want to use this time to be able to run up even more debt. But the reality is, 
it's not an economic catastrophe if we don't raise the debt ceiling. It's an economic catastrophe if we keep raising the debt ceiling. In fact, because we've raised the debt ceiling every time we've hit the ceiling, that's why we have so much debt. If Congresses in the past had had the guts not to raise the debt ceiling, we wouldn't be in this predicament because we would have balanced the books a long time ago and we wouldn't have all this debt. You know, it always makes me laugh when I hear these politicians say, you know, we have to raise the debt ceiling because America always pays its bills, right? Because what they're saying is, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, then we won't be able to borrow more money so that we can pay our bills. And so we need to raise the debt ceiling because we want to keep paying our bills. Well, the reality is the reason we have to keep raising the debt ceiling is because we never pay our bills. See, if we actually paid our bills, we wouldn't have any debt. It's because we don't pay our bills that we have all this debt. And because we want to continue to not pay our bills, that's why we want to raise the debt ceiling instead of paying our bills. You see, it doesn't count. If you get a visa bill in the mail and you pay it off with your American Express card, you know, you haven't really paid it off. You've just transferred the debt from one lender to another. So when Americans borrow money and then they repay it by borrowing more money from a new lender, nothing has ever been paid. It's one giant Ponzi scheme. And we want to continue this debt pyramid and have it grow and grow and grow. And that's why we want to raise the debt ceiling. Now, yes, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we accelerate the catastrophe. So what Biden really means is that if we raise the debt ceiling, we can kick the catastrophe down the road and we won't have to deal with it today. But of course, it'll be a bigger catastrophe because we're going to have even more debt. So by raising the debt ceiling now, we can avoid having to deal with the problem now. We can just make it bigger and then have an even bigger problem to deal with tomorrow. But hey, don't worry about that because we'll kick the can down the road again tomorrow as if you can constantly kick every can down the road forever. I mean, if that was possible, then there would never be any debt crises. But there are. Countries go through them. History is replete with examples where highly indebted countries eventually ran out of rope. And just because America has more rope than maybe any other country by virtue of our status and the reserve currency status of the dollar doesn't mean it's an endless supply. At some point, we will reach the end of our rope and then we're going to be dangling from it just like everybody else. But Biden doesn't want to face the music while he's in the White House. And so, no, he doesn't want to have to deal with the crisis of not raising the debt ceiling and forcing America to actually pay its bills which we can't do. And so we'd have to start defaulting. We'd have to start cutting government spending. So what Biden wants and what everybody in government wants is to continue business as usual, continue to pass the buck and go deeper and deeper into debt so we can buy stuff we can't afford and borrow money we can never repay, all to keep a crisis at bay because we'd rather have it happen on somebody else's watch. And the other political reality that stands sharply in the way of Fed tightening or Fed tapering even of their asset purchases is what is playing out right now on Capitol Hill. I already talked on my last podcast about how the congressional Democrats have already backed away from a substantial portion of the Biden tax hikes on the rich, and they've even thrown in some tax cuts on everybody who's not rich. And so at the end of the day, 
whatever tax plan makes it through a Democratic Congress is not going to be anywhere near adequate to pay for even a tapered spending deal, right? The deal that Biden wants is three and a half trillion. He may not get three and a half trillion, but he may come closer to the three and a half trillion in new spending than he got to the new taxes to pay for it. Because it's obvious that politically speaking, it's much easier to vote to increase spending than it is to increase taxes. Because anytime somebody wants to increase taxes, somebody has a vested interest in paying off the politician not to raise the rates because somebody is going to be negatively impacted by higher taxes. I talked about that on the last podcast. The hedge fund guys would be severely impacted if the carried interest deduction went away. And that's why it didn't go away because they go to Washington and they bribe all these politicians to leave that in there. And so you're always going to have a lot of pushback from special interest groups whenever somebody's taxes are getting raised. And so politicians trying to get reelected are going to back away from doing anything that might endanger that goal. But on the other hand, when you're talking about spending, I mean, nobody's really objecting to government spending. Everybody just wants you know, their share of the pie. So it's a question of who gets the money. But there's nobody that's actually advocating not to spend because if you don't get any government money, you're not losing anything that you can see. You're just not winning the government money. The only losers when the government spends money, in theory, are the taxpayers that are footing the bill. But they're not an organized political group, right? You need to have a cohesive, organized group of individuals or companies that specifically stand to gain or lose from a particular piece of legislation in order to get the lobbying and the bribing, right? Whether it's legal bribes or illegal. But when it comes to the government spending, all that happens is everybody is lobbying to get their share of the spending. Oh, I want you to spend the money on this program because it benefits me. Or no, spend the money on that program because it benefits this other company. And so what generally tends to happen is the tax hikes aren't as much as you plan and the spending is more because everybody wants to be on the receiving end of the government largesse. So typically, whenever the government wants to spend money, they end up spending a lot more. Now, of course, the government also generally errs in the way they believe their taxes or spending will impact the economy. So they always overestimate how much revenue they're going to collect when they raise taxes because they have an overly optimistic view on the economy and they also underestimate what everything is going to cost because again they don't understand moral hazard and they don't get how the addition of a program thrown into the mix in and of itself generates demand for that money because people organize themselves in such a way to now become entitled to this government money. So when the government is trying to figure out how many people would qualify for a particular program based on how many people qualify for it right now, what they don't understand is a lot more people will all of a sudden qualify for it in the future once you dangle that carrot in front of them. And then, of course, everything ends up costing a lot more than they think anyway. So their estimates of what they're going to spend end up being woefully low compared to what's actually going to spend. So what I think is going to happen now, again, we're not getting as big a tax increase as 
Biden had hoped, but we're probably still going to get the big spending increase, even if it's not the full $3.5 trillion because you got guys like Joe Manchin that are saying, I want something less than that. So we might get something a little less than that. But I think the difference between what the government collects in taxes and what it spends is likely to be much wider than the markets were anticipating. So even bigger deficits, even though the government may be spending less initially, they're going to be collecting less in taxes. And so they're going to be even more heavily reliant on the Federal Reserve to pick up the slack and fund the difference with quantitative easing. And so obviously, if the Fed is going to be looking at larger budget deficits in the future than the ones it's got right now, and it doesn't want interest rates to move materially higher and crush this overly indebted economy, the only politically viable choice it's going to have is going to be expanding quantitative easing, which is exactly what is going to happen. And it doesn't matter about these retail sales numbers. It doesn't matter about any numbers. The Fed is already on autopilot. You can forget about all this. This is all noise because we are in too deep. The Fed is in too deep and fully committed to use a poker expression, it is pot committed. It has built up this pot so large, it can't fold. It is just going to keep on throwing chips into the pot until ultimately it loses everything. It's going to, it's going to go bankrupt on this policy because it, it, it can't change. It is completely committed and wedded to this QE permanently, to 0% interest rates. It's, you know, it's got this tiger by the tail and it can't let go. You know, and, and, and so none of this stuff matters. And when the markets finally figure this out, then, you know, none of this is going to matter. We're going to start to see uh, a much bigger increase in the price of gold, a much bigger drop in the value of the dollar. But until then, I mean, you got to ride through the noise and you got to take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves. As these gold stocks are coming down, I mean, they're cheaper now than they were the last time I recorded a podcast, but they were cheap then and they're even cheaper now. So it's an even better buy. So you just keep on buying what the markets are giving you. Take advantage of those opportunities because at some point this market is going to turn. And I think it's going to turn very, very quickly. And you're going to want to be in the market before the turn. You're not going to want to jump on a rocket ship after liftoff. You want to be comfortably sitting in the cockpit before the rocket blasts off. You're not going to be scrambling to try to grab a hold of it as it's shooting through the air. I think this is a good time in the podcast to take a little breath, unclench your jaw, relax your shoulders, and take nice, slow, deep, even breaths. You know, sometimes we all need to take a little time to ourselves. And that's where Calm can help. I've partnered with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, and you could drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. Over 100 million people around the world already use Calm to take care of their minds. Sleep more. Stress less, live better with calm. You know, a lot of my friends have told me that they meditate. In fact, some of them actually swear by it. And it's something that I've never actually tried for myself until now. I decided to give meditation a try and I'm using calm as my guide. And for my listeners who'd like to join me, 
Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash gold. So go to calm.com, C-A-L-M dot com slash gold to get 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash gold. And you know, another example too of the way the government makes a mistake and then it just digs in and then it just keeps on doubling down on its failed policies because it never can acknowledge that it got something wrong. It's not just the Federal Reserve that puts itself into that situation. I mean, take a look at the situation with COVID. I mean, clearly, I think we responded, and most of the world, I mean, not just the United States, but the entire world, I think, responded wrong to COVID. I think the one country that got it right was Sweden. And, you know, I talked about what Sweden was doing in real time when they were doing it. And I said, in my opinion, I think Sweden's doing the right thing. We're going to have to see. But initially, everybody was vilifying Sweden, right? Sweden was the a perfect example of what not to do, right? Everybody was trying to say, oh, my God, look how bad the COVID cases are in Sweden. I mean, compare it to Norway or compare it to Finland, even though there were some stark differences between those countries, even though they were all Scandinavian, just because they were in close proximity didn't mean that they were a perfect comparison. But one of the early comparisons was the overall mortality rates, like how many people were dying in Sweden relative to other countries that had locked down and masked up and had done all these things to stop the spread. And early on, Sweden, I think, ranked 12th on a list of countries' mortality rates. So 12th was kind of near the top, right? It wasn't the worst one, right? So there were countries that had higher mortality rates that had cracked down on COVID that were requiring people to stay at home and and they had, you know, all the lockdowns and more people were dying than was the case in Sweden. But since Sweden was high up, like number 12, it was, aha, you see, look, you see, this is really bad. So, you know, that's why Sweden is wrong. Well, the interesting thing is, that now that a lot more time has gone by, Sweden's not number 12 anymore. Sweden has fallen all the way down to 40th. In other words, there are 39 other countries, all of which had far more draconian responses to COVID than Sweden. But in those 39 countries, more people are dying from COVID than are dying from COVID in Sweden. But not only did Sweden experience this much lower mortality rate than those 39 other countries that cracked down, but they did it without the sharp economic cost because they didn't shut down their country. They didn't take all their kids out of school. It was more or less life as usual in Sweden. I mean, yes, they did some sensible things to reduce the risk to the people that were the most vulnerable, but the evidence is clear that the Swedish example was the way to go. But is anybody admitting that? No. No, they want to continue the same policies. They want to continue the vaccines. I mean, look at Israel. Israel is the most heavily vaccinated country in the world. I think everybody now, or almost everybody in Israel, has at least three shots for Pfizer. And now they're talking about the second booster. So that's four shots. Yet you're having much bigger problems in Israel 
than you're having in Sweden. Israel has a much bigger COVID problem on its hands, despite all the things that it supposedly did right, than what you're seeing in Sweden, despite all the things that they're saying it did wrong. Because the government is wedded to their initial response. And they don't want to admit, you know, maybe we did something wrong here. Maybe we went overboard. Maybe this isn't the right way to go. Maybe Sweden had the right answer. Maybe natural immunities, maybe a lot of young people getting COVID, maybe that was better uh, than keeping everybody at home and then rolling out these vaccines. Plenty of people are getting COVID now who have been vaccinated. And in fact, I was looking at a chart of the deaths in Sweden, and the chart went back a couple of years before COVID and now all the time since COVID. And you can look at the chart and there's a couple of blips, couple of times where you see the deaths per thousand jump up a little bit above normal. But if you look at where it is right now, the number of people who are dying in Sweden is normal for what you would expect based on historical death rates before COVID. So if what they did was so bad, you would expect to see horrific deaths in Sweden. After all, they didn't do all the things that you were supposed to do. Where are the negative consequences that Sweden is experiencing? If those negative consequences are not there, well, then maybe Sweden did the right thing. But again, it's not just looking at the results as far as deaths from COVID, but you also have to look at the costs that other countries paid and the fact that they have very little or nothing to show for it relative to Sweden, even though they spent a fortune on these lockdowns in terms of how much debt they incurred and the hardships that they imposed on their citizens. I mean, we have no idea how much damage we're actually doing, especially to our young people, our children who are, you know, are not in school or uh, not experiencing life the way they should experience it. And you're only young once, right? You don't get a second go round with your youth. So, you know, once you grow up, you're grown up. But if we're robbing our children of a lot of very important experiences and milestones that they ordinarily would get to enjoy, but we're sacrificing those things right now on the altar of this COVID response and the lockdowns and, and everything that we, we have to do because we think we have to stop the Black Death when looking at the evidence in Sweden, that's not what we have here. I'm not diminishing the fact that COVID isn't serious and that people can't die from it because obviously those are true. But that doesn't justify the response that we have unless also you think that governments are being motivated by some type of ulterior motive in the form of a power grab, in the form of trying to get society to accept these limitations and restrictions on their individual liberties so that the government can come back and do other things in the future based on having already seized this additional power, right? Once they gain this ground and they never give up that territory, now they can take this power and they can use it in other ways that the public never would have agreed to, but you got them to agree to it through the vaccines or through the lockdowns first because this was supposedly for the public health because this was the only way to stop the spread and make sure that we didn't have mass mortality as a result of this pandemic. And so we were willing to give up our rights 
and give the government more power. And then, of course, at the first chance they get, they will misuse that power because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is what we are giving the U.S. government, really, is absolute power. And now we can't expect them to use that weapon benevolently when there is no historical precedent for that happening. Governments abuse every power with which they're entrusted. And so you entrust them with a special power during wartime, and then they use it against you during peacetime. You know, by the way, I wanted to finish up the podcast as long as I'm on the subject of wars, because when I talk about the negative consequences of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack, because I was speaking about the fact that it had been 20 years since we had that terrorist incident. And of course, there was a lot of effort to take a look at what has happened in the country in those 20 years and to look back on the events of that day to pay tribute uh, to those who perished on that day. And certainly a worthwhile tribute to make. It was an extremely unfortunate, tragic event in American history and one that we should not forget and one that we should commemorate the way we commemorate, you know, Pearl Harbor and look back on on those events and, and how it changed the country and what happened on that day. And so people should never forget what happened on September 11th, 2021. But I talked about all of the negative consequences and I mentioned the Afghanistan war, which was the immediate consequence. And now that has lasted 20 years because we're supposedly just wrapping that up now. But We'll see, uh, based on how poorly the plan was executed, we may not, right? You know, just when you get out, they pull you back in, and we may be pulled right back into Afghanistan. We'll see, just when we thought we were out. But I didn't mention the Iraq war, because that was another war that I think was a consequence of the 9-11 terrorist attack. Now, even though the Iraqi war didn't even start for another two years, right? That war started in 2003, and the terrorist attack was in 2001. And we did not go into Iraq because of 9-11. Remember, we went into Iraq because we were told they possessed weapons of mass destruction and that if we didn't invade them, that Saddam Hussein was going to use these weapons of mass destruction, WMD, they were calling it, they were going to use those weapons against us. And so we needed to go into Iraq. We need to evade Iraq, get rid of Saddam so that we can get rid of that threat of these weapons of mass destruction. So that was the pretext for going in there. But personally, I think had the memories of September 11th not been so fresh in the minds of the public and the thirst for, for vengeance, right, to get back at the whole Arab world, you know, not just for the specific guys that were masterminding that attack, but for all of the terrorists that might be in the Middle East and the fact that maybe this bad guy like Saddam Hussein, if he does have weapons of mass destruction, he may use them against us just like those other terrorists used those airplanes against us to create mass disruption of the Twin Towers. It was the idea that something like that could happen even on a grander scale, I think that's what gave Bush the political clout to be able to drum up the support. Not only drum up the support among the public for a war in Iraq, but to drum up congressional support. 
So if you take away the September 11th terrorist attack, I don't think we would have had an Iraq war. I mean, I don't think we would have been able to go to war just on the pretext of weapons of mass destruction without having just experienced the mass destruction of September 11th. And of course, we all know that those rumors ended up being false because by the time we got into Iraq and took a look around, there were no weapons of mass destruction anywhere to be found. Now, you can argue, and I don't really know, and I don't necessarily have an opinion over whether the whole thing was a lie from day one, and we knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction, and we went in there anyway, or we just had really bad intelligence. You know, it's funny too, every time I I go to say weapons of mass destruction, in my mind, I'm thinking of rodents of unusual size. And if you're not sure what that reference is, it's to a movie, Princess Bride, but their reference for rodents of unusual size is R-O-U-S. So R-O-U-S or WMD. But anyway, that's how my mind works when I think about this. But I guess in that movie, in The Princess Bride, there actually were rodents of unusual size. They were there. But in Iraq, there were no weapons of mass destruction. The whole thing was false. So either it was a failure of intelligence or we just deliberately lied to create an excuse, a pretense for invading Iraq. But nonetheless, we started the Iraq war. But the reason I wanted to talk about it is because it is another failure. We spent, I don't know, another one to two trillion dollars on the Iraq war. And it lasted all the way up until 2011. And the reason we went in there wasn't just to get the weapons of mass destruction. It was to make America safer, right? Because by eliminating this thug, uh, Saddam Hussein, and getting rid of his weapons of mass destruction, America would be safer, right? We would be less likely to be attacked by terrorists if we got rid of Saddam Hussein. So we spent a couple of trillion dollars to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And what is the net effect? Is the U.S. safer today because we had the Iraq war? And my conclusion is absolutely not. I mean, number one, we're definitely poorer because we spent all this money fighting the war. And maybe had we won a victory that actually meant something, you could have said it was money well spent. But no, it was money flushed down the toilet because we didn't achieve anything because Iraq is not our friend. Iraq is Iran's friend. I mean, the reality was before we got rid of Saddam Hussein, Iran and Iraq were enemies, right? They were fighting each other. They didn't like each other. And that was actually in our interest to have our enemies be enemies of themselves, right? You know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, not so much our friend, But it's good if your enemies don't like each other because now they can spend a lot of their resources fighting each other and not you, right? But now, once we got rid of Saddam Hussein, now Iran and Iraq are like buddies, all right? I mean, all the people that are running Iraq are very friendly with the people that run Iran. And so I think we have basically made the Middle East a bigger terrorist threat. I think it's easier for Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban. I mean, all these guys have an easier time now when Iraq and Iran are allies, right, instead of adversaries. So we have created a situation where the clear winner of the Iraq war was Iran. Now, 
You can say, well, Peter, maybe the Iraqis are better off because there's no Saddam Hussein. Well, maybe they are, but that wasn't the purpose. We weren't there to make life better in Iraq. That wasn't what we were told. We were supposed to make America safer. That's why we went in to Iraq, not to improve the lives of the Iraqis. And the reality is America is less safe because we got rid of Saddam Hussein. Now, as far as, well, you know, maybe it was good for the Iraqis, again, we don't really know. It's hard to say. First of all, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died in the Iraq war. So they're not better off. I mean, they're dead. A large percentage of the deaths in Iraq were civilian, right? So these weren't Republican guards. A lot of women and children died in that war. So clearly they're worse off and their families are worse off because you know, they lost their family members in that war. But as far as the people who survived, is life in Iraq today, is it better than it was under Saddam Hussein? Do people have a higher standard of living? Are the streets safer? Are they cleaner? Is the quality of life overall, is it better or worse? And I'm not even sure. I mean, I'm not an expert on that. I certainly would say that for some people, they're better off. And for some people, they're worse off. It depends maybe on your religion and your political connections. There's some people who have benefited from the removal of Saddam Hussein. And there's others who probably wish he was back in power because life was better when he was in power than what they're experiencing today. But I'm not sure. And for the purpose of this podcast, I'm not really going to get into it because I don't know firsthand about it. But what I can tell, obviously, is from the perspective of an American citizen and as an American taxpayer, we are worse off as a nation economically and strategically because we made the mistake of invading Iraq and fighting that war. But again, the reason I wanted to bring it up on this podcast was not just because I forgot to mention it on the prior podcast and I focused only on the mistakes that we made in Afghanistan and never really went into the mistakes that we made in Iraq is again to embellish the point that I made earlier about governments never admitting their mistakes. They just repeat them over and over again because look, look at the mistake that we made in Vietnam. You would have thought that the U.S. government would have learned a lesson from losing the Vietnam War, but no, we didn't learn any lessons. We just ignored all the lessons and we invaded Iraq anyway. We went into Afghanistan anyway. We basically lost the war in Afghanistan. Now, we technically won the war in Iraq, but what did we win? You know, we won nothing. Again, Iran won that war and they didn't even fight in it. (laughs) 